It's Bigfoot Collectors Club with Bryce and Michael. <laughs> I know a ghost story or two. Let's do this. <laughs> Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Bigfoot Collectors Club, the show where we talk to amazing guests about their personal paranormal history and share stories of high strangeness. I am your host, Michael McMillan. With me always is your other host, Bryce Alien Johnson. And our super producer, Riley Craft Bray. (laughs) Well done. Nice! (laughs) Boys, what are we celebrating all summer long? Wet. Hot alien Alien summer. That's right, motherfuckers. And uh, we have got a treat of an episode for you today because this is the conclusion to our Roswell saga right here on the Bigfoot Collectors Club. But before we get to that, we have a little bit of uh, housekeeping. Mm. Uh, I want to remind all of you guys that uh, our Wet Hot Alien Summer t-shirt by James Maholland is available right now at our store at Campfire Media on their website, wearecampfire.media. Just click the shop button. Boom. Scroll down. You'll find the shirts. Uh, pick one out. Summer is still happening. I think it's happening for the rest of our lives. I'm wearing mine right for... now. I'm taking a selfie with it, sending you guys. Boom. Oh, shit. Tank top, wet Whoa, hot alien wait a summer. Minute. Bryce, where are your pants, dude? Come on. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What's up with all that wadded up Kleenex around your ankles? This is what? getting Roswell. Pants on That's memory Roswell. metal, dude. That's memory tissue. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you can't be destroyed. <laughs> That's my Pam Spermia uh, delivery <laughs> materials. Oh, oh my God. Uh, what are we doing? Uh, really starting it off classy. Yeah, baby. And I wanted to let everybody know that uh, we're celebrating Wet Hot Alien Summer. Also, on the other side, our Patreon page, you can head over there right now and listen to a Roswell Detours episode where we talk more in depth about the 1947 UFO flap and uh, some loose tidbits from our research that didn't quite make it into the main episode. So definitely check that out. For $5 a month, you can support the show and have access to multiple bonus episodes. Episodes episodes every month all right guys riley uh how is that video submission coming along for our club bryce video better than i have ever imagined (laughs) yes (laughs) people care said today was the deadline uh we did but if you're still working on something please send it in um (laughs) like a good professor riley will accept late submission yeah i'll take a i'll take a late paper it's okay (laughs) i'm the cool professor um uh, yeah, the submissions have have wildly exceeded my expectations, and I'm so excited with what we're cutting together. And if you would like to be a part of this, now is the time to send something in. Remember to film horizontal, and uh, yeah, have fun, get weird. This is going to be a great project. I'm so excited about uh, it. Yeah, let's say get those in by the end of this week so we can yeah. get this video to you guys before the, the summer ends. And uh, also... Um, 
Oh boy, I just well, whatever. I just completely blanked on what I was gonna say. So who the fuck cares anyway? Maybe I'll maybe I'll submit a video of myself getting weird. I mean, can I be in oh, my own video? Do. Bryce, you are absolutely. Club I think that's Bryce. common okay. practice. Okay. okay, good, good, good to know. Usually, <laughs> to know. the main artist appears in his own. Video. At least a cameo. Okay, no, it's good to know. This is the first I'm hearing about. It. All right, great. <laughs> There's um, this show, Bryce, it's called Bigfoot Collectors Club. You would love it. Yeah. You should be on it sometime. You should be a guest. Uh, I can't remember what I was going to say. It doesn't matter anyway. Um, but we do actually have a special guest today who stopped by the virtual studio to talk about their new book. We're going to get to them in just a moment. But before we do, let's kick this episode off with a little bit of... BCC News. All right. Hi there. It was nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, CNN, a little bit late to the party, uh, is getting in on the UFO subject, and they report uh, Pentagon to launch task force to investigate UFO sightings. Ryan Brown reports for CNN: The Pentagon is forming a new task force to investigate UFOs that have been observed by U.S. military aircraft, according to two defense officials. Deputy Secretary of Defense David Norquist will help oversee the task force, uh, which, of course, I applied for. Uh, you guys should do as well. <laughs> um, which is expected to be officially unveiled in the next few days, according to the officials. Previous efforts to look into what the Pentagon dubs unidentified aerial phenomena were led by the U.S. Navy as many of the documented encounters involved their aircraft. The Department of Defense did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Members of Congress and Pentagon officials have long expressed concerns about the appearance of the unidentified aircraft that have flown over U.S. military bases, posing a risk to military jets. There is no consensus on their origin, with some believing they may be drones potentially operated by earthly adversaries seeking to gather intelligence rather than extraterrestrials, to which Bryce Johnson says, come on. The Senate <laughs> Intelligence Committee voted in June to have the Pentagon and intelligence community provide a public analysis of the encounters following the official following the official Pentagon release of three short videos showing U.S. aircraft encountering these phenomena. Quote, we have things flying over our military bases and places where we are conducting military exercises, and we don't know what it is, and it isn't ours. So that's a legitimate question to ask, the chairman of that committee, Senator Marco Rubio, told a local Miami news station. Uh, frankly, if it's something from outside this planet that might actually be that might actually be better than the fact that we've seen some sort of technological leap on behalf of the Chinese or the Russians or some other adversary. Oh, yeah. Oh, scary Chinese and Russians. Uh, the videos released by the <laughs> Pentagon appear to show unidentified flying objects rapidly moving while recording while recorded by infrared cameras. Two of the videos contain service members reacting in awe at how quickly the objects are moving. One voice speculates that it could be a drone. Donald Trump in April called the footage a hell of a video and told Reuters he wonders if it's real. That was the worst Trump impression ever. Uh, uh, but there you go. So here we are, CNN getting in in the foray. Uh, you know, look, I guess they're assigning a new task force, uh, pretending that there wasn't one already. Uh, which is great, though. I wonder who they'll choose and what their uh, objective goals will be. But, uh, you know, Michael, you always say they're they're at least trying to, you know, keep this 
grounded with two feet by saying, hey, these could be some sort of Chinese or Russian drones, uh, some technology that, uh, you know, from an earthly adversary. Well, they are. They just have to couch it in national security. Otherwise, right. get the funding for it. It's not like anyone can go out there and be like, wouldn't it be cool if we just found out what these things are? I know. I know. You know, I guess I guess little steps and and uh, stuff like that. But I wish I wish we could just, you know, talk in terms of what we're really talking about here. You know, but craft I think with technolo- I th- technological advances that that completely stymie anything uh, we have, whether here or foreign. Yeah, I think this is it. I think we're witnessing it happen. You know what yeah. I mean? It's baby steps and it's destigmatizing the rest of us who are like, I think there might be UFOs. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. That's the important thing. And uh, if you read between the lines, it's pretty yeah. clear that they're open to the idea of these things being from another planet. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. is right there. Extraterrestrial. What do, what do you think of this, Riley? I mean, I, I'm super hyped on this news and that this, this is actually being taken seriously as a theory and yeah of course it has to be couched in this national security like terrestrial foreign threat thing but the fact that this door is open now is is really exciting it just shows a and that's a more modern in my mind uh way of thinking you know it's it's a, a more open mind to what's going on here and acknowledging that maybe we aren't the 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 biggest and the bestest that are here you know maybe there's more there's more to this planet than meets the eye. It's it's very exciting. It's really cool. And, and it's refreshing that, and look, I'm sure there's a shit ton that we don't know about, it's top secret and all that stuff, but at least they're being above the board and putting some type of public face to this discussion by saying, yeah. hey, we're going to, the Pentagon's going to put together a task force, you know, uh, a new one. So yeah. at least I'm sure there's a lot more going on behind the scenes, but at least they're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely um well but who cool. who knows if uh we'll actually get any answers in the long run but well, there's that yeah but you know, yeah. Least, you know they're talking start. about it yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully they'll get some like cool space force suits with ray guns as part of their task force uh uniform or something like that That'd be i really scary. would just be so excited if they just announced it was us and we didn't even apply for it they're just like these guys <laughs> these guys are gonna do it they're perfect for the that job would be so great i'm i would be in <laughs> well, uh, speaking of answers, we had a chance to talk to our friend Ryan Sprague from Somewhere in the Skies podcast about not only some questions that we had about uh, Roswell uh, during our research, but his uh, the new edition of his book. So we're going to jump over to that conversation with Ryan. And then when we come back, it's time for Roswell Part 3. <laughs> Today's guest is the author of the book Somewhere in the Skies, which has just been republished with a second edition. I'd like to welcome back to the show author, podcaster, and UFO researcher, Ryan Sprague. Yay! (laughs) What's up, guys? Hey. How are you Uh, enjoying your wet, hot alien summer, (laughs) Ryan? It has been one hell of a summer full of aliens man i mean the world of ufos has exploded so you know while the world is falling apart in some ways us ufologists are pretty damn excited right now i hate to say it <laughs> yeah. what an opportune time yeah oh my God, what yeah. a perfect time to have your book come back out was that plan i mean obviously like in the publishing world i feel like you know there is some foresight stuff is planned well and ahead but uh i mean what perfect timing for somewhere in the skies to come back out it it was it 
completely by chance too, man. I have to admit that. Like I, I'd been working on the follow-up for about a year now and, um, it's, it was a lot of work. I mean, the new book is about 70,000 new words. So it's like basically a new book, um, wow. to be completely honest. I should have just written a new book, but um, the point of the book was <laughs> you know, some to- uh, do that. They just write a second book. You can't, you're you know, allowed. You know. <laughs> it's, that's allowed. But um, no, the big thing with me, and you guys know, is I deal with the people having experiences. And uh, these are not one-off events. A lot of these people have had follow-up experiences or their thoughts and views have changed on what they saw or experienced. And I wanted to- tackle that. I wanted to catch up with them some four or five years later after everything in the entire UFO landscape has changed. The wow. conversation has changed. The so that's cool. So you're not, you're, you're not just tacking on, and I, I don't mean that cheaply, but I'm just saying you're not just adding a few chapters at the end of the book. You're actually going back and digging back into previous chapters and expanding them as well. Exactly. Uh, every person in the book, almost every person I followed up with, and uh, it was astounding to see patterns and, um, you know, follow up experiences, like I mentioned before. But there are new chapters as well. I bring forth <laughs> more cases that have never seen um, the light of day before, have never been made public. So I'm excited to get those out there. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I, I was never one to buy a second edition of a book, you know, unless it was in college and I was buying a new textbook, you know, but, um, yeah, yeah I felt if I was going to do this, we all know how fun that is. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> hey, Brian, can you give us, uh, maybe an example of, uh, of someone's follow-up experience and, and if it was, you know, very similar to their original experience or had it altered dramatically, is there anything like that? Yeah. I mean, Bryce, a lot of the uh, the abduction cases I cover in the book, you know, that's a very controversial topic to begin with, uh, whether you love it, hate it, don't believe it, whatever. Um, I did follow a lot of these abductees in the first book. And what I found interesting is some of them went one way and embrace it and have had, you know, continuing experiences with whatever mm. uh, intelligence lay behind their quote unquote abduction experience. And then some... I came to and they said, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want wow. it to be a part of my life. Um, so no case specifically, but the one that really stuck out to me was a UFO case where a gentleman was one of hundreds of people to see this thing, this UFO in the sky, but nobody else remembered it happening except him. So wow. like that, you know, that's, that, that could be troublesome, you know, like maybe, Maybe he made it up or this or that. And um, for years, I struggled with this case and trying to track down other people who saw it. Nothing. Nobody ever came forward. I even went to like the drive-in movie theater where this UFO case occurred over a movie, a movie theater and um, talked to the people who worked there. It's no longer there. But uh, nobody could remember anything. And God. then after the first edition came out, about a year ago, I got an email from someone who said, I live a town over. My boyfriend worked at that movie theater and we saw the same damn thing that night. Whoa. So it was vindication for this guy. The story was no longer just resting on his shoulders. It was closure for him that, you know, he wasn't crazy, that now we could prove he wasn't making shit up. And uh, yeah, it was exciting to have those moments where we can look back at the case with fresh eyes again. Incredible. Do you remember, did he recall what movie was playing that night? Oh my gosh, that was one of my first questions for Mike, and um, it's actually escaping me right now. The word 
hand was in it and it was like a b sci-fi movie so how Ooh. appropriate for a ufo sighting right yeah right. that was yeah. kind of what i was thinking like i you know because you know we recently really got into and uh discussed over on the patreon passport to magonia so we're the, yeah. the idea of like the psychic interaction with these things or these things the phenomena sort of building off the collective unconscious is sort of at the forefront of our minds right now which has made me wonder what movie they were watching and if you know if, if yeah. there was any linkage to what there was on could screen be and, and the i even uh, yeah yeah and i asked him i'm like do you think this could have been some sort of marketing ploy for the movie you were seeing? <laughs> like throw a throw a huge chevron shaped ufo over you and uh, right. scare the crap out of everyone but I, of course no. i'm clearly a dupe because I, my mind went right past <laughs> that to like well there it is it's just manifested you know you know what's yeah, that way <laughs> You know, so I, I think is sort of fascinating too with with all these uh, accounts is there's really an aspect of like uh, a chosenness, like this intelligence or whatever these entities are. There's got to be a feeling of like, why did you choose me? You know, do you, did you find that a lot of these experiencers uh, had a feeling of that sense that they were struggling with uh, with the why factor? Why me? Bryce, that's actually a uh, title of a chapter in the book. It's called wow. Why Me? And um, that was one of the first questions I asked these people too is, do you feel that you were chosen for this or was this like a fishing effort? They just took mm. whatever they can get down there. And uh, it really depends person to person. And, um, you know, for those who felt they were chosen, that's that's empowering for them. And I'm wow. not going to take that away from them. Like none of us know what's truly going on. So if they felt they were chosen and they got something positive out of this experience, all the power to them, man. Because for every one of those people, there are people who this was so traumatizing that it ruined their lives. So wow. um, it really runs the gamut. And, you know, I tried to find patterns and uh, light at the end of the tunnel. But dude, this is such a messy topic. And you guys know, once you think you have an answer, something changes in the blink <laughs> of an eye. And uh, Totally. Yeah, yeah. The why me is something we need to continue to look at, though. I firmly believe that. How has the revisiting the stories and getting updates, has it uh, affected the way you look at the phenomenon? It has definitely uh, evolved, I think, Michael. I, I wouldn't say like my, my beliefs or anything have changed because I really really tried to keep my beliefs separate from writing the book. Um, because, yeah, of course, we all have our own preconceived notions or beliefs when we do these things. But trying to be an objective uh, journalist, if you want to call me that, or author on the topic, I try to keep that separate. And it's hard, man. Like, you, when you embed yourself into these people's lives, you become a part of the story. And I found that happening with myself. So I think, I don't even think that, it was a choice for me to follow up with these people. I think it was essential because at the end of the day, they were teaching me more about this phenomenon than I ever truly knew. And I took a little piece of everything someone had to say and kind of infused it into my own life and my everyday conversations on this well, that topic. Makes, yeah, that makes me think of John Keel. I mean, he definitely got involved with the Mothman <laughs> story, you know, while investigating. He became part of the story. Well, yeah, he was like. an experiencer himself. And, uh, you know, he had a few anomalous experiences throughout his life. So much like yourself, Ryan, I mean, um, so it's great that there's, uh, you know, people still out there, you know, speaking with witnesses and doing, you know, boots on the ground investigation and 
And uh, yeah, so it's it's exciting to uh, to hear about what you're doing, and I, I personally can't wait to read uh, read your book. I think oh, it's got to I think it's got to be hard to not get personal too when you're writing this stuff, because as we all know, doing the podcast, so much of the blanks of this stuff is filled in by our imagination. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It really requires the user to think outside the box when trying to figure out what this stuff is. Absolutely. And, you know, I, it is a deeply personal and profound thing. So how do you not do that? Again, you can have a time and date of a UFO sighting. That's cool. But I mean, until you hear the story behind it, uh, that's what really gets me. I mean, look at these Navy videos. We had like 40 seconds of a blurry UFO um, until we heard the witnesses come forward and the pilots telling what actually happened. That's when you get the full picture and the full scope of what we're dealing with. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, having that whole context of just not only that, but uh, not only the fighter pilots who saw them, but their carrier groups as well. I mean, it expands the story so dramatically. I mean, it you know, you you really need so many pieces of this puzzle to to even form a hypothesis, you know? Absolutely, Bryce. And the last thing I'll say on the book sort of is um, there is a chapter where I cover the radar operator, the first individual to track the Tic Tac UFO during the oh, Nimitz wow. event. Um, so without this dude tracking these things on radar, uh, we never would have intercepted, gone in there, seen what they were. We never would have got the video. We never would have got the follow-up. We never would have heard about this Pentagon UFO program. I don't Incredible. think. I don't yeah. think. And yeah. that's a lot resting on this one dude. And it really affected his life. So I follow his journey from tracking the first Tic Tac, because um, there were many Tic Tacs, Besides what that one video shows us, um, up till the moment when the story broke, you know, in the New York Times and on CNN and everything and how his life changed after that. So incredible. It's it's powerful, man. Well, Ryan, you know, we're covering uh, a certain little town in a certain little state. Uh, We're we're doing Roswell, New Mexico on our podcast. And we are so excited to talk to you because – Unlike most people, you've actually been to Roswell, yes? Yes, I've uh, been to Roswell, and I've been on, supposedly, the debris site. So I I can't even tell you how important this case is to me and how much I treasure those memories and what I experienced there. So you went out there for Roswell Decoded, the show for CW, correct? Was that your first trip out there? That was not my first time to Roswell, Mike, but it was my first time out to the uh, the debris site. I'd gone there once before, um, got my first ever tattoo in a shack in the middle of the desert. <laughs> no way. So, nice. yeah. What'd you get? It's a question mark. Of oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a conversation piece for sure. But um, I thought it might have been uh, Mac Brazel eating a cold can of beans on your calf. <laughs> <laughs> Mine would be an exclamation point, man. <laughs> Boom. We got the punctuation going, Bryce. Yeah. <laughs> Did you find your eyes like sort of darting around looking for debris? Like maybe there's maybe I'll catch something. Every time I saw like a candy wrapper on the ground, man, I was convinced it was from that crash. But um, no, working with the television show and working with the uh, the individuals we did to find the debris site and uh, even get materials tested. Uh, yeah, that whatever. Was what happened with that? What happened? Have, did you guys get results? Have you heard since the show any more information on what you guys found out in the debris field? So 
Um, for anyone who did see the show, we did get them tested at a very prominent aerospace lab, and they came back really interesting. Um, they were not what I think people wanted or expected. They thought we would find alien material, and that's the end of the story. Booms, case solved, um, which you guys know it never is. And um, we found that the material that was brought to us, that was found at the debris site, um, had high, high traces of certain compounds, um, alloys, that was not found in any type of aircraft in 1947. What we found were compounds that are still being tested and used today in aerospace, SpaceX, uh, Bigelow Aerospace. So whatever this individual found in the desert out there, it was either the most highly advanced aerospace metals being used on a craft back in 47, or it's possibly alien. I, I don't know what else to make of it, but um, we are wow. continuing to follow up with the geologist, Frank Kimbler, who we went out to the desert with, who found these materials and um, continuing to work to get them tested again and again and again, because, you know, we can't take one lab's word for it. I mean, if we're talking off world materials, uh, yeah. this is going to take time and a lot of resources. So well, let, I'm excited to keep doing that. Yeah. Oh, let's, I was just going to say, sorry to cut you off. Let, let's talk about some of these off-world materials that we're hearing so much about in, in, in the mainstream press, uh, in, in, in like the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, and even CNN as of late, talking about these off-world materials. You know, doing this, doing this podcast on Roswell, you know, Riley was even like, it sounds like there was so much debris. I can't believe that, you know, more of this stuff isn't coming to the surface. Do you yeah. think that some of these materials we've been reading about are materials from the Roswell crash? It's very possible, Bryce. I mean, and you make a good point that there's no way our military was able to gather every single piece that was out there. Because like you guys covered in your show, this thing stretched out for miles, this crash site or crash sites, if we even mm -hmm. want to go there. Um, and we even talked to this geologist who found the debris this dude found military buttons, military grade buttons dated back to the 40s out in that same desert. So Whoa. we're envisioning like guys on their hands and knees out there picking up every little piece. Yeah. And, you know, maybe their clothes get torn on something or things fall off. And Well, you know, yeah, they're hot as hell out there. They're unbuttoning their jackets. <laughs> you know, they're probably stripping off their clothes. So a button or two <laughs> pop popping off, it doesn't seem, you know, uh, not to, you know pardon the pun, out of this world, you know? Um, that makes so much more <laughs> sense. It's those little humanizing details that really, for me, ground this story we've talked about, you know? So you mentioned a second ago, Ryan, that there were possibly three crash sites. In our research, we've seen the debris field, the second site, quote-unquote, the D. Proctor body site, where supposedly Mac and D. may have found a body or two, and then the third crash site, uh, which is the big impact site with two or three or four alien bodies. Mm -hmm. Wrapping our brain around all of this stuff is a bit tricky, and it's a little inconsistent even in the research. And one of my questions for you is this story of Barney Barnett and the archaeologist that discovered the third crash site, which... In the books we're reading, sort of bring that up and then dismiss it. I, I didn't know if you had an opinion on that, because we're trying to struggle where to fit that into the timeline. Yeah, the um, the Barnett 
part of this has always I I I change my mind constantly on it, Mike. To be completely honest, um, I the the whole concept of bodies is something I struggle with. Um, now we have where the object first crashed. Fine, um, goes back into the air, crashes again around the Proctor Ranch. Fine. Um, then we have this idea that it finally crash lands and these aliens try to find coverage um, in a cave or possibly somewhere else in the area and this guy found the bodies. Um, From the research I've done, from the people I've interviewed, nobody can substantiate this story. So I I don't know what to make of it, man. I, I think it's cool and interesting and yes of course i want there to be bodies involved with this case but um i have found no definitive proof that that is what happened at roswell that uh, there were biological entities in whatever crashed and that um that those bodies were found i just haven't personally uh been able to to vindicate that yeah, it's tough. I think if they were found, they must have been found by the army, because as we'll get into later in this episode, there were definitely witnesses that said, as old men, I saw the bodies. But we, even in UFO crash at Roswell or witness to Roswell, don't really seem to have a solid story on how that impact site was found. Yeah, yeah. It's all, again, we're at the point now where even firsthand witnesses, none of them are still here with us. So how do we get the true full story? Uh, I can't answer that. But I think what you guys are doing and trying to put a timeline to this um, is the most logical thing we can do, because that's when we can really follow person by person, case by case, like what happened with this thing, because... Look, they tried hard to cover up whatever happened there. I can guarantee you that this was a cover up of something. There's no denying that. But what it was, I don't know if we'll ever know. But I think we're getting closer. Right. I mean, I think we can all agree there were dead alien bodies there. I think we. I think we're all in agreement with that. And uh, it's nice to hear it on record from all all three of us. So well, yeah, that's, that's important. We're certainly going to make the argument for today in today's episode. I guess before we wrap up, Ryan, I want to know what a two two questions, two two prong question, if you will. One, what do you think people get wrong about Roswell uh, that they should be getting right? And then ultimately, what what do you think they actually found? What was this thing? And I'll add to that: what mystery is left to be found? Uh, Three for prongs. Roswell? Three, Three prongs. prongs. All right. What is wrong? What do people think is wrong? Um, I think people need to keep in in their minds, Mike, is this was the very, very early stages of uh, space exploration. I mean, we were doing constant high-altitude tests during this time um, out in the deserts, um, all over the United States. And I think we have to keep in mind that, yes, it's very possible this could have been a craft from another world that crashed. I am still completely open to that. Uh, but we do also have to keep in mind that there were a lot of top, top secret early spaceflight tests going on as well. Um, so if there were bodies found, it's very possible that it could have been ours, another nation, um, conducting very high altitude balloon tests with actual people in them. Um, so yeah, I think paying attention to the fact that this was the very, very early days of space uh, flight 
tests is important and something a lot of people don't think about a lot. Um, remind me again what your second prong was. The second one was, what do you think? Well, you sort of answered it, but I was like, if you had to take a wild guess, what do you think it was? If you had okay. to come down on a, this is what I think it is. Yeah. He's trying to pin you to the mat here, Ryan. Don't <laughs> let him do it. Don't let him do it. <laughs> Bryce, I will always remain open to this being of extraterrestrial origin because there's a lot that, that leans that way. Um, a lot of the people involved have said that, including Jesse Marcel, who we can't discount his claims and his um, his testimony. For me, and the findings that we did and found with our investigation of this case, that the metals found out at the debris site were aerospace, possibly. Um, I really tend to think this was one of the earliest space shuttles or something of that sort that we were testing. Um, that doesn't make it any less exciting, in my opinion. Uh, I think that's extremely important, something they would definitely want to keep under wraps if it crashed, and it makes sense. So um, I tend to believe this was something from Earth, but I can't say that for certain. Great. And then the third question we wanted to ask you, Ryan, what mystery is left for us to solve uh, with regards to Roswell? So much, man. I mean, I'm even hearing stories now from um, not even stories. I mean, this is documented by the Proctor family, who you spoke of in your episode, that there's possibly materials that were stored away somewhere Mm. on their ranch. And one of my fellow Colleagues and investigators, Heather Taddy, has gone out to that site, and they found the cave. Oh, and, my God. And they went to dig, and they were stopped by the family and told they don't want them digging there anymore. So wow. something might be underground there. It yeah. might be from the crash, and we have to get back there. So yeah. I'm hoping to uh, work with her to get them out there and uh, convince the Proctor family that this is something we need to do, possibly for all of humanity. Yeah. I mean, let's and be it, honest. It, you well, know? and it sounds like the intimidation that the, that the government employed has still has left a long shadow. Oh, absolutely, man. I mean, they did everything in their power to cover this up. And like you guys have said, they didn't know what they were doing back then. They'd never dealt with a UFO cover-up before uh, in my you know, research. So they were really stumbling along as they were going. But I think they did a damn fine job of shutting everyone up in that town for almost 50, 40 years or so. You know? so, Incredible. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, man. Um, this is a case that needs to stay open. Um, lest we forget about it, which I don't think we'll ever do. So um, I appreciate what you guys are doing, giving it a timetable, because I think that's extremely important. And um, I'm loving everything you're doing, and you're on the right track. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. You are a privileged guest here in uh, in BCC family. We love you, man. Can you tell our listeners where they can buy your book? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Amazon print and uh, ebook. You can order it at Barnes and Noble as well. And otherwise, you guys know I do the show every week and everything's at somewhere in the skies.com. There Fantastic. you go. Oh, thanks so much for uh, coming back on the show. Good luck with the book. And uh, when we figure out this Roswell thing, we'll let you know. <laughs> Please wow. do, man, because it's driving me nuts and we need to know what happened, especially now. So thank you. It was an honor and keep up the good work. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks Brian. Brian. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, 
Okay, get ready, Riley, because it's time for our conclusion to the Roswell saga. And um, I don't know where we're going to end on the other side of this. This I do. (laughs) I know right where we're going to end. Alien bodies. Bodies. (laughs) Alien bodies. That's right, Riley. That's what we promised last week, that we would get into the aliens uh, this week. And, oh, my God, like everything else in this story, there's so much. So why don't we get right into it? Yeah, let's jump right in. Club Scouts? Insert sticks into marshmallows. Hover over campfire now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sure. Campfire story. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. Here we go, kids. In parts one and part two of our story on Roswell, we discussed a legendary flying saucer crash of 1947 from the perspectives of Mac Brazel, the humble ranch hand who discovered strange debris on Foster Ranch in Corona, New Mexico, and Jesse Marcel Sr., the Army Major from Roswell Army Airfield, assigned to collect, examine, and deliver the materials to General Roger Ramey in Fort Worth, Texas. It was Ramey who immediately retracted the Army's original story that they'd recovered a crashed flying saucer and replaced it with a downed weather balloon. In this chapter, we're going to take a look at the witnesses who claim to have had a close encounter with the dead occupants of the crashed flying disc before it was officially determined to be a flying man-made instrument, and what may have happened to the little not-so-green men after the American public accepted that nothing exciting ever happened in the sleepy little town of Roswell, New Mexico. It's time for the conclusion to our Roswell trilogy with part three, the bodies that no one saw. The first mention of alien bodies discovered in the crash of Corona came when Mac Brazel cryptically mentioned to radio DJ Frank Joyce during a phone call at the sheriff's station that he'd found horrible-smelling, non-human beings while collecting debris up at the Foster Ranch. The stench. The stench. Unfortunate little creatures. God damn it. They're not monkeys. And they're not human. The discovery of at least two alien beings at a second crash site two and a half miles from the first one, the debris field, was corroborated by Sidney Jack Wright, who was a boy at the time, who claimed... There were bodies, small bodies, with big heads and eyes, and Mac was there too. We couldn't get away from there fast enough, but it didn't matter. They was in our brains forever, the sight of that. Won't you see that? You'll never see anything again that looks normal. I can't remember... The last time I made love to a woman where I didn't see those jumbo alien eyes looking up at me right while I was coming. <laughs> Are we still on the record right now? Is this- yeah. Always. Always yes. on the record. Yes. This is direct quote. Yeah. End quote. <laughs> the third supposed person to see these two bodies was the youngest witness in the story of Roswell, seven-year-old D. Proctor. Throughout his entire life, Dee refused to speak to investigators about what he saw. He died a morbidly obese alcoholic at the age of 66 in 2006. 
According to Dee's mother, Loretta Proctor, who also got a glimpse at the strange memory metal Brazil and Dee found, her son acted as if he'd seen something that terribly frightened and disturbed him. The boy would grow up seemingly traumatized by what he saw and refused to speak about it even to family members. He only hinted at what he discovered to his mother in 1994 when he drove her out to a ridge about two miles from where Mac had found the debris in 1947 and cryptically spoke the words, Here's where Mac found something else. I mean, this poor guy. Yeah. Dying a just traumatized alcoholic yeah, at a relatively young age. I mean, this is truly, I think Z Proctor is truly like the worst part of this story. Yeah. 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 And it just shows it. you what an impact this had on people. Yeah. Yeah. As we covered in part two, if Major Jesse Marcel Sr. ever saw a body, he never spoke about it publicly. Even when blowing the lid off the weather balloon cover story to UFO investigators in the late 70s. Extended family members shared secondhand stories involving Jesse mentioning quote unquote pygmy bodies, but we don't really know. We can only assume that if Mac had found two bodies, he would have directed Marcel and Cavett to their location. But if so, we don't know why Marcel never talked about the alien beings himself. The aliens at the center of today's episode primarily comes from the third crash site, about 40 miles southeast of the debris field. This is where the front half of the saucer was discovered with three to four more alien beings, one rumored to still be alive. This likely occurred sometime late on Monday, July 7th, or in the morning hours of Tuesday, July 8th, after Colonel William Blanchard had ordered additional troops and military police to quarantine the ranch and ordered flyovers of the area. And here's kind of where, when we get back into this weird timeline that we're trying to piece together, you know, I forgot the uh, the fact that if they found bodies on the 7th with, if Marcel and Cavett saw those bodies with Mac Brazel, then those probably got shipped to the base by the end of that day. And then that night or early in the next morning is when they find this impact site. So from everything that we're going to hear, there was a total of four bodies. Right. But maybe even you, more. Yeah. Maybe more. If you count the one or two at the second site and then the three or four at the third site, we might have as many as five, maybe six. I would say, though, and this is just me thinking off the cuff, probably no more than five. Yeah. Probably, probably no more than five aliens. Well, I know what you're talking about, right? Because I get that Marcel and Cavett you know, go out to the debris field and collect as much as they can and, and bring it back, you know, but if, if they saw those bodies, would they have left them there? Would they have known what to do? Would they have been like, let's come, let's tell, well, would, let's it, come back for these. I don't it would, know. It would have made know? sense. Then that's why Cavett left at noon, yeah. contacted Kirtland in Albuquerque, which contacted, you know, Washington. Yeah. It would make sense why, uh, Blanchard sent more troops up that day. I mean, because you just want to touch not, those things. You know, you might want to get a biohazard unit out there immediately. Or who knows? I mean, in back in the forties, a biohazard unit was just a man in an ice cream truck. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> bing, 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 bing. But it, I'm here to pick up your aliens. Because <laughs> they sent, because Blanchard sent up more men that day, yeah. and then the next morning on Tuesday, July eighth, he sends up even more and orders flyovers. But you got to think, okay, if there was a a chance that Brazil was like, oh, by the way, I got to show you something else. 
that's you know this is when they started really putting on high alert and yep. wanted to get up and lock this place down agreed so this is a bit of speculation on our part although it is backed up by research done by tom carey donald schmidt and kevin d randall uh, in their books, UFO Crash at Roswell and Witness to Roswell, respectively. But the third crash site may have been discovered in part by Air Transport Unit pilot Captain Oliver W. Pappy Henderson. In 1988, after reading the Roswell story and a description of the aliens in a tabloid, he confessed to his wife, Sappho, that he had flown a C-54 with the first load of wreckage to Wright Airfield in Ohio after Ramey publicly recanted the story. Mm. Although he did not go into detail, he remarked to his wife, I suppose I can talk about this now, and told her that flying saucers were real and that the description of the bodies in the tabloid were true. During a deathbed confession in 1997... Henderson described the shape of the alien bodies like that of Casper the Cartoon Ghost. Weird. As one of Blanchard's trusted pilots, it stands to reason he could have been one of the men doing flyovers on July 7th or 8th that led to the discovery of the third crash site. The truth is, we don't really know exactly who discovered that impact site. It may have been E.L. Barney Barnett from last episode, or a group of archaeologist students, or both. And it may have been as early as the 7th of July, or sometime in the morning hours of July 8th. Hmm. Wild. I mean, that's incredible, you know? I mean, here's a guy saying, you know, finally to his wife over some Salisbury steak, you know, yeah, I think I can tell you now. Sappho. Her name was Sappho. <laughs> Sappho Viod. What? <laughs> these are like. What, what happened to these forties names? I, don't know. I, don't <laughs> I mean, know. why aren't we researching how people were naming their babies back in the nineteen tens <laughs> and twenties? The other thing that really kind of pops up here with that description of Casper the ghost. Now, of course, you're thinking of that little body and big head, but it sort of echoes last week when we talked about how Sue Marcel Methane, one of. Uh, uh, Jesse Marcel's extended family members recalled him describing the bodies as white, white powdery figures. Yeah. So there's a common thread there. It's hard to ignore. Yeah. We know for a fact that numerous military witnesses in the twilight of their lives who were ready to meet their maker and wanted to clear their conscience went on record to categorically state that they were there when it happened. They held the wreckage and they saw the bodies. Ed Sane was a PFC member of the 390th Air Service Squadron attached to the 509th Bomb Group at RAAF. He told his son Raymond, years after the fact, that he and Corporal Raymond Van Wy were assigned to guard the bodies that had been stored in a tent up at the impact site until they were transported to the base. According to Raymond, his father was extremely reluctant to talk about what happened due to being under a security oath and fearing for his life if he said anything. Now, the tent comes up again in the story told by 26-year-old Sergeant Frederick Benthal, a photographic specialist serving in the Army Air Forces. Benthal had helped film the atomic bomb testing during Operation Crossroads. Bernthal was stationed in Washington, D.C. at the time of the Roswell incident and was flown in to the crash site with Corporal Al Kirkpatrick. Once at the site, Bernthal claimed he was sent into one of the tents to take photos of the alien bodies and of some of the debris. 
Before their ride back to the base, Bernthal's camera and film were confiscated. When they got back to Washington, a Marine lieutenant colonel named Bibby asked the men a question. Sergeant, sit on down. Your wife good? Great. I want to ask you something. Do you know what you photographed in New Mexico? Yes, sir. Wrong! You do not know what you photographed. Now, I will ask you again. Do you know what you photographed? No, sir. That's a hell of a lot better, Sergeant. Dismissed. Tough guy. I'm Benthal. This guy, what a cool, what a cool dude. He's a photographer. He took all the photos of the atomic bomb testing. I mean, that's pretty rad. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, he's the guy they called to be like. Uh, he takes photos of all the other top secret shit. Let's get him to take pictures of the of these aliens. Yeah, keep in and- mind this is forty seven. They didn't have iPhones with cameras. I mean, this guy had specialized camera equip- equipment with light bulb uh, with flash bulbs, and they brought him into this dark, dark tent where for over an hour he said he walked around yeah. the table taking picture after picture of these bodies. And he, yeah, I mean, this guy, like, basically designed the way to film atomic testing. And he said that after Roswell, he was, Riley, get a load of this, he was reassigned to the Antarctic. No. Yeah. They shipped him off to Antarctica after this. That's enough this out of, of you, boy. is honestly blowing my mind. This is crazy. <laughs> so Sergeant Leroy Wallace was also assigned to the three, 390th as an MP. And his widow claims that he had been sent up to Corona to assist with a crash site. He returned home the next morning, reeking of a terrible stench. She told Carrie and Schmidt for their book, Witness to Roswell, Ooh, The stench on his clothes was the worst smell you could ever imagine. I had to strip off his clothes. We ultimately burned them and buried the ashes. You know, I, I had to strip off his clothes because he didn't want to touch them. And I thought to myself, well, if you already smell, if your body is already all smelly, now my hands are going to touch them. But I have these very, very thick gloves that I use for dishwashing because, you know, if your hands get too hot under the hot water, it just dries out the nail. And, and so like, those gloves, I threw them away after... But yeah, we had we had to burn the clothes and that that smell too. Oh my goodness. It was like a rotting flesh chemical smell and coyotes tried to dig them up for months after. I think they thought there was a person there, but they they had little success at it. But I don't know if there's a law against burying burned clothes and ashes in the backyard, but thank God no one ever no one ever found them. These days I would do it differently. I think they probably make tubes or something at the container store. I don't know. I don't know. The smell haunts me. It's still in my nose hairs. Okay. Wallace had been traumatized by his duties collecting the bodies. He began to bathe obsessively, scrubbing away at his body with lye and a coarse brush until his skin was red and raw. He walked around for two days after he returned home, did not sleep, didn't speak either. There was just a 50-yard death stare in his eyes, like a man home from war. And for the next two weeks when he ate, He wore gloves because the smell was still on his body. 
Well, you know who you should really be talking to, him. But he's dead. But but he's got all the stories. I don't know if he would tell you. He would always say to me, it's top secret, top secret. I can't even be talking about the fact that I have something to talk about. I, I never knew if it was real or he just didn't want to talk to me, you know. That's how things were back then, you know. Men went to work and they didn't talk about it with their wives and... There were so many secrets about him, and, and not even ones that had to do anything with UFOs, just secrets, secrets a man has in his heart. You know, there was a woman, oh, there was a woman that he loved dearly, and she married someone else, and, you know, I always wonder if he would wonder about her in our intimate moments. You, you never know what's going on in a marriage, in a man's mind, and so we didn't have the best marriage, but that's what you did back then. You, you picked someone, and you, you settled down for comfort. You stayed together, and you, and you waited it out and, until one of you died. Shortly after the cleanup at Corona, Wallace was transferred out of Roswell. So again, another dude who saw something sent away. <laughs> right, I want to hear that like transfer stamp sound effect. You know? <laughs> yeah, you can really echo this. Give give this one a really good echo effect, uh, Riley. Transfer. <laughs> Great. <laughs> nice. So what did the aliens look like? Good question. Sergeant Melvin E. Brown was one of the men assigned to guard the trucks that hauled the egg-shaped section of the craft and the bodies from the impact site back to base at Roswell. Although he was ordered to guard the trucks and not look under the tarp... (laughs) Please, why are you obsessed with my magical closet of mysteries? (laughs) That joke from (laughs) Simpsons. He's like, all right, soldier... Uh, we know some. everyone's acting super weird. We know there's some weird shit happening right now. You need to guard this truck, and whatever you do, do not look underneath it. <laughs> uh, Brown's curiosity got the better of him, and he peeked under the tarp of and course. saw... Yeah, why wouldn't you? One of the bodies. According to Brown, the skin of the being looked yellowish-orange, which was possibly a result of decomposition. The skin had a reptilian mesh-like quality, not scaly, but leathery and beaded like the hide of a lizard. Lizard people. Wow, that's reptoids. Wild. Reptoids. I mean, here here's where maybe where we start to get all this stuff. I don't know. If that doesn't give you the heebie-jeebies, then perhaps this will. Frankie Dwyer a 12-year-old girl in 1947 testified that her father, Dan Dwyer, was the crew chief for the Roswell Fire Department at the time of the crash. And when a call came into the fire station that there had been a crash north of town, Dan and his partner, Lee Reeves, took the call. Arriving before the military, Dan would later describe to his daughter what they stumbled upon out in the middle of that desert. He said they came upon, unquote, an egg-shaped vessel that was certainly not an airplane. Even more disturbing were there were three diminutive, human-like, but not human bodies that to his trained eyes were obvious victims of the crash. But it was when, out of the corner of his eye, that another being, still alive, stumbled out from behind the crash that Dwyer realized he was in way over his head. When he finally made it home that evening, he spilled his guts to his daughter Frankie, and when she asked him, Daddy, what did they look like? He simply replied, Child of the Earth. They looked like Childs of the Earth. Referring to the cricket-like insect with the large head and bulging black eyes. 
Yeah, a Jerusalem cricket. We talked about this story briefly during the Roswell uh, slides hoaxbusters episode over on the other side so that might ring a bell if you're driving in your car google it right now and look at it (laughs) i mean alien head that's what you're gonna look at i mean it's a cricket it's a big nasty looking cricket with like what looks like kind of an alien gray face with antenna but this story here this is one of those that i kind of put into the el barney barnett uh, legend like Roswell legends. I don't know if this is really considered canon. You mm, know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. um, because this thing bumps me with the idea of her dad, the fire station getting a call about a crash before the military would. Where does that fit into the timeline? And I think it fits in when. Even if you think it's Barney Barnett calling that in or the archaeological students, they were supposedly kicked out by the military. So I don't know when this happens. I mean, it's hard to know. But look, you know, Roswell, the town of Roswell was a buzz about this crash before even the military knew about it. So it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that the Roswell uh, Fire Department had got a call, whether it was from a concerned uh, townsman or an actual call itself. But, you know, the, the fact that they went out there is, is crazy to think. And I, I know, I know what you're talking about. Like, it doesn't really go on to say like what he did after he saw those alien bodies, because obviously if you're a, if you're a fire chief, you're probably trained in some sort of emergency response. Did he tend to this alive alien? Did he, you know, fucking pack up his, well, not me, hightail it out of there. Um, well, I, don't, I don't know, you know. And this is where we get into the problem of secondhand stories versus firsthand stories. You know, if Dan yeah. Dwyer had been able to tell this story, he might have said, no, 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 no. I actually saw that at the base, you know, right. or I saw that the, you know, because we'll learn uh, as we go further that, you know, the ambulance uh, for the base was often used. They, they had a contract with the local mortician. So it's possible that they had a contract with the local fire department. Most definitely. And they brought the fire department up there with them, you That's know, exactly and that it's right. just yeah. the memory of a 12 year old girl trying to piece together and remember exactly what her dad said. You know, the yeah, game of telephone, the game of telephone over 30, 40 years, <laughs> you know, uh, can really change the way that stories are told as they're being handed down. No, that's but a great, I, that's a great point because look, they're testing all different kinds of aircraft out there and different things, and I'm sure that there that crashes took place and that the military, the the Roswell Army Airfield, called on that local fire department out of Roswell to help assist. I mean, they had the only water trucks probably in town, you know. And I think that this might have been, Frankie might have been the daughter of a fireman who was told that little girls go missing all the time in the desert if, yeah. if they didn't keep quiet. Um, I just, I have to tell that anecdote in every episode because it scares me so, so bad. So deeply creepy. Oh, wait, oh, wait. Yeah. Okay, this one will match our transferred uh, uh, sound effect. Ready? Threatened. <laughs> By most accounts, the description of the beings are consistent, with the exception of Brown's report of the jaundice colored skin. The witnesses that followed generally describe what we would consider today to be alien greys. The entities were said to be three to four and a half feet tall, with bluish gray reptilian like skin. Their bodies were frail and narrow, weighing at about 40 pounds. Their heads were oversized, with wide set, slanted almond-shaped eyes 
two slits for a nose with a slight narrow bridge. And the beings had no ears, just holes on the sides of their heads. Their mouths were described as being lipless slits that seemed to serve no purpose for speech or eating food. Because when opened, the mouths were revealed to be just a two-inch deep pocket. They had no observable digestive tract and no genitalia, although a nurse who oversaw the autopsy back at the base said that this could have been due to predators that had gnawed them off in the desert. She just can't get over the fact that they don't have dicks. I love they it. They don't have dicks! <laughs> I, I, well, they must have been chewed off or something. Somebody sent us a hunting party out for a coyote. There's a coyote with some alien balls in its mouth right now. Somebody chewed off those dicks. That's all I'm saying. Back to the bodies. Go ahead. Because the creatures had been out in the elements so long, they were in varying states of decomposition and had been obviously preyed upon by desert scavengers. I gotta stop and talk about this fucking mouth for a minute. Yeah, that's crazy. That shit is wild. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, pocket and mouth. Pocket mouth. <clears throat> pocket mouth. Because think about this. I'm going to pull up Bryce and say, now just stop and think about that <laughs> for a minute. Pause for a minute. Imagine the scene. This to me says that these aliens are then not, in fact, biological creatures uh, by uh, any you know sense of the word as yep. we know it. If they don't speak, they don't eat, they don't have a digestive tract, this to me says that these are some sort of bioengineered robot of some Absolutely, kind. Absolutely, man. Arto- yeah. Artificial intelligence. Drones. And, and it perhaps they are specifically designed to pilot these ships. So it'd be kind of like if you built a plane and then cloned the pilot as the print as the plane's operating system. You yep. know what I mean? Yep. Cause right. these, because they said that these crafts are like 12 to 15 feet in diameter and four or five feet high. If I'm like one of those tall whites or, uh, or a draconian reptilian alien and I, you know, who knows what this interstellar or interdimensional space travel is like. You might go, well, we need a craft this size, but we're too big to fit in them. Why don't we grow our own pilots? Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, look, we send drones to Mars. We send drones and uh, satellites to outer space. It's not out of the realm of possibility uh, to think that w- whatever this species or was that they were doing the same thing that these well, are part of a is, scouting mission you know it's just like all the 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 russian and chinese drones that are chasing our f-15 f-15 fighters right right <laughs> i mean it's either something wild like that which is very sci-fi and i'm like super into or it's a being like us in the future and we've like evolved past the need for a mouth and a digestive tract, yeah, you know, yeah. that we are just like, now we just communicate with t- telepathy and we've figured out a way to nourish our bodies without having to actually eat. You know, there are those hippies that say they get all their nourishment from the sun alone. You know, maybe they're like that, you know, these damn space hippies. <laughs> That's what it is. Solved. But you know, they say space that our- hippies. <laughs> they say that our pinky finger is smaller because we're evolving away from the need of the pinky finger because we're not hanging on to branches anymore. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. So what about the- shredding guitar solos? Yeah. Dude, gotta you got to keep it alive. You got to keep that pinky alive, keep bro. Keep the pinkies alive. Guys, please keep the pinkies alive. 
Um, I love this idea of the uh, the the uh, cyborg robot part biological. I mean, or, it's Terminator, but yeah, no, or it's that's, like it's awesome. Yeah, it's like some half clone, half you know. Maybe these are the things that they're collecting from us when they abduct us. Maybe it's human DNA mixed with some sort of artificial life. You know what I mean? Maybe that's why they need us. Maybe that's why they need us is so we are our hybrids become the, the the pilots of these crafts. Definitely. And look, here's another thought too, right? If it's if these creatures are so far advanced uh, with their technology and with their AI, perhaps then they've already met with the singularity. In other words, perhaps their technological prowess has gained a consciousness, so that these little drones perhaps might have consciousness consciousness of their own and that are able to interact with their pot with their vehicle uh quite like bob lazar stated about what what he thought he knew about the how the vehicles were operated who knows i mean dna is like the ultimate coding language right like yeah. the 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 language of dna wrote this code of of all life that we live with like and if, yeah if a species could get to the point that they could like interface with that directly and kind of fuse that line between computer and uh, biological technology it's like you know a holistic technology that exists within nature like yeah why why couldn't they design i mean these, we hear these like beings? these rumors yep. of them oh, being yeah, like silicon based life form you know what i mean maybe that's right that's what these things are it's so fucking weird remember if this is from another planet or another dimension who the fuck knows with technology way beyond ours that little fucking pocket mouth like is so creepy to me. I just picture <laughs> like hiding mouth. things in there. I picture him putting his tiny <laughs> little pinky in there. Maybe that's where they're hiding the penises. Huh? <laughs> that's where their penis Solve is. Solve that one. That makes uh, sense to me. I'm just saying that makes sense to me. Well, as we're going to hear in a little bit, uh, they didn't have pinkies. So this might actually support my theory. Uh, one of the surprising witnesses to the Roswell incident was New Mexican Lieutenant Governor Joseph M. Little Joe Montoya. Montoya was visiting the RAAF on Monday, July 7th, the day that the first bodies, presumably from the second crash site, arrived. According to Montoya's close friends, two brothers and Roswell citizens and next-door neighbors, Reuben and Pete Anaya, the lieutenant governor was on the base that day to perform the dedication of a new airplane. As trucks started arriving from Corona with debris and bodies, Montoya apparently got a look at the debris and the aliens as they were being rushed into Hangar P3, known today as Building 84. In a panicked phone call to the Anaya family, Montoya asked Ruben, who was a base cook, to come pick him up at R-A-A-F. I'm at the big hangar. Get your car, Ruben, and pick me up. Get me the hell out of here. Hurry. Ruben recalled pulling up to the hangar and watching as Montoya burst out a side door and ran to his car like a bat out of hell. Back at Ruben's house, Montoya collapsed on the couch and demanded a drink. He threw back a tumbler of scotch and raved about what he'd seen to the Anaya brothers. I've got to calm myself down. You are not going to believe what I've just seen. If you ever tell anyone I call you a damn liar, we don't know what it is. There 
was a flying saucer. They, they saw it. It moves like a platter, a plane without wings. Un plato muy grande con una máquina en la media. Montoya shot to his feet and exclaimed that he saw little men and that, incredibly, one was still alive. I know, because I could hear him moaning. Montoya, a short man himself, described the beings as being as tall as his chest. They were so skinny, they didn't look human. From what I could see, they had four long fingers. They had large, bald heads. I wasn't close enough to see what color their eyes were, but they were larger than normal. I tell you, they were not of this world! After a brief power nap, Montoya escaped to the Nikon Hotel in downtown Roswell, which was owned by his brother. The next day, the Anaya brothers went to check on the lieutenant governor, who quietly informed them. Confidentially, they shipped everything to Texas. The little guys are in the hospital. Montoya told them that they had to keep quiet about this wild information. That night, the brothers were paid a visit by one Sheriff Wilcox, who warned them that if they ever talked with anyone about anything, that the lieutenant governor told them everybody, including their children, would be killed. Threat! <laughs> nice. <laughs> Whenever the brothers would try to discuss the matter with Montoya, he would simply tell them, It's too dangerous to talk about. If you talk about it, someone, maybe not the FBI, but someone in the government... We'll do away with you. As the wreckage and the bodies arrived at the base, PFC Eli Benjamin, a security officer for the 390th ASS providing assistance to the 509th, was ordered to grab his gun and report to Hangar P3. Bryce is going to read his account that was told to the authors of Witness to Roswell. I got myself ready, got my gun and reported to the big hangar as ordered. As near as I can recall, it was late afternoon or early evening at the time. While looking for my OIC, which stands for officer in charge, to get instructions for duties at the hangar, I came upon a commotion taking place at the main entrance to the hangar. Some MPs were trying to subdue an out-of-control officer who, among other things, appeared to be drunk as a skunk. I found out later that the officer in question was from my squadron, and was the very officer to whom I was to report for a special detail. This officer, whose name I cannot now recall, was to have overseen the transfer of several, quote, top secret items from the big hangar to the base hospital, and I was there to help escort the transfer. I was later told that he had been to the crash site and had seen the ship. When this officer reported to the hangar and saw the small bodies, it was apparently too much for him to handle and he just lost it. At this point, having just arrived myself, a major or a lieutenant colonel that came out of the hangar looked over the situation and pointed at me. You, come over here, he said. You're now in charge of this detail. Get these over to the base hospital, now. He then pointed to three or four gurneys inside the hangar, each of which had something on it that was covered by a sheet. On one of the gurneys, whatever was under the sheet appeared to me to be moving. I saluted my acceptance, 
an understanding of his order and instructed the rest of the men in the detail to load the gurneys with their payload onto the back of a truck that had just arrived for that purpose. Up to this point, I had no idea what we were transporting to the hospital. I would know soon enough, however. As the men were loading the truck, one of the gurneys slipped during the handoff and the sheet covering it fell away, revealing the grayish face and swollen, hairless head of a species that I realized was not human. My orders were to deliver these to the base's hospital emergency room and remain there until relieved. Upon arriving at the emergency room ramp, we proceeded to unload. I went in with the first gurney and stood aside near the doorway as the medical people took control of the gurney. A half dozen or so medical and non-medical officers quickly removed the covering sheet. I couldn't see too well from where I was standing because of the number of officers gathered around the gurney, but I could see well enough to make out that a very small person with an egg-shaped head that was oversized for its body was laying on the gurney. The only facial features that stick out in my mind now are that it had slanted eyes, two holes where its nose should have been, and a small slit where its mouth should have been. I think it was alive. The medical people were mostly just staring at it, but I'm not sure. After the rest of the gurneys were brought into the room, I was dismissed and told to return to my squadron, which I did. There, I was debriefed and made to sign a non-disclosure statement regarding what had just taken place. I was told that if I ever spoke about it, something bad would happen, not only to me, but also to my family. I heard later that the one species that was still alive was apparently taken to Alamogordo, then shipped to Texas or Ohio. Imagine that those 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. And you get a look at something that blows your fucking mind, and then you are told to never speak about it and never get any real answers, just rumors for the rest of your fucking life. Yep, yep. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he says it right there, not human. I mean, just those two words alone should let you know what we're talking about. And this guy was found, um, he didn't say anything forever. He was one of these guys that followed order. And in fact, after he told this story to Thomas Carey and Donald uh, Schmidt for Witness to Roswell, the first thing he, according to them, that he said after he told that story was, well, do you think I'm going to lose my pension? Isn't that crazy? Mm. That's all he could think about. As an old man, because he was just terrified that... yeah. Letting this out of the bag was going to fuck up his life. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why, and you got to think, you know, these were the guys who were still alive. You know, think about all, I mean, Bryce, how many people do you think were in this base hospital when these bodies came in? Oh my God. Dozens, if not dozens upon dozens. Look, I I think the witnesses go the same way as UFO reporting and Bigfoot reportings, right? Like only 10% go on record. So you know, this caseload of witnesses with these deathbed confessions really only represent a small, small percentage of the people who were actually there who saw more uh, than even this guy. And, uh, and as of like the mid to late 2000s, they, we don't have them anymore. Isn't that fucking insane? Yeah. Like, and it's these first, this, this, this is the difference between the Frankie Dwyer story, which is fascinating. And this, this is a firsthand account. This first-hand. is a guy who never spoke about this for 50 years and finally talks about it. And he's still scared that he's going to lose his pension. It's incredible. Wow. 
Glenn Dennis was an embalmist at the Ballard Funeral Home in Roswell. On July 8th, he began receiving calls from military doctors and nurses from from the base, first asking if he had any child-sized caskets available, Mm -hmm. and then shortly after, numerous calls asking about the embalming process and how to move the dead. Yeah, and Michael. No reason. Yeah, for, yeah. for a friend. It's a uh, friend. What? Don't worry. Don't do nothing. Did nothing. some kids die? What? No, 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 going no, 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 no. It's, uh, it's just a, uh, a hold project. On. Uh, Wait a minute. Nothing. What? <laughs> oh my gosh! You know, Michael mentioned it earlier, but another interesting little side note: uh, besides the strange requests made by the base for children's caskets, the base also made last-minute orders of a large amounts of dry ice which Clardy's Dairy delivered to the base. Uh, Just to make it spookier in there? Yeah. Get a little fog going. Totally. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they basically, guys, I know it's a little early, but this would make a wicked haunted house. <laughs> it's a little on the nose, but a, a bit of fog in here would really amp it up. These bodies are going to go bad, so let's let's get this going now. Make right. a couple bucks. Right, and you know, Michael, like Michael mentioned earlier, the Roswell Army Airfield, they didn't, they did have a hospital on the base, right? But they did not have a morgue or their own ambulance and EMT services, uh, which is why the base had a private contract with uh, Glenn Dennis and the Ballard Funeral Home. And that'll come into play in a minute here. So Dennis figured that there must have been a plane crash, but uh, children's coffins? That wasn't something the Ballard Home uh, had on hand. They would need to be special ordered, and apparently the base dismissed the idea and moved on. Later that afternoon, Dennis was called out to pick up an officer who had been cra- in a motorcycle crash and bring him back to base. And this is where the ambul- This is why he would come out and use uh, use their the Ballard vehicle as an ambulance. So often he was picking up guys and bringing them to base and going to and from base. So he had a pass to get on the base. That's right. And when he arrived at the airfield with his patient, he discovered a lot of activity. Well, not his patient, the patient, you know what I mean. He discovered a lot of activity happening at the base hospital. His mind spinning with the strange phone calls from earlier, Dennis decided to see what the fuss was all about. As he got out of the car, he approached the base hospital and noticed a number of box-type military ambulances parked out front. One of the trucks had its door hanging open, and Dennis caught a glimpse of a bluish, metallic, canoe-like structure within. The strange object had mysterious symbols that adorned its surface. Once inside the hospital, Dennis quickly bumped into a panicked, nauseous nurse who greeted him with terror. What are you doing here? Get out! Get out as quickly as you can or you will be in a lot of trouble! That's when an unnamed sergeant and a red-headed captain walked out into the hallway and ordered Glenn Dennis to remove himself from the hospital, or he too might soon be in need of an embalmer himself. Threatened. Glenn protested, saying he saw the wreckage and wanted to know what was going on. After all, he was a civilian, and he didn't have to take orders from the military. The red-headed captain called Dennis a son of a bitch, telling him that there had been no crash, and if he didn't want to end up dead in the desert, he would need to leave immediately. Threatened again. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Carry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> redheaded captain. That there was another redheaded captain, right? Yeah. This rings a bell. Okay. This is when I start to circle back again to this fucking archaeolo- archaeological student Barney Barnett. And, Barney Barnett story because apparently a redheaded captain had told them to get the fuck out uh, out of the way. Uh, so maybe there's some truth to this Barney Barnett yeah, story man. in the plains of San Augustine. Uh, I think I called it the plains of St. Augustine last episode. Who the fuck knows? But still, <laughs> it doesn't add up because his wife said he wasn't in town that day. And that was 140 miles away from the crash site. I don't get it. But still, it's a weird note that I don't think the authors of the books we've read put those two together. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe there were just a lot more gingers in 1947. It's possible. Angry gingers. <laughs> Days after the activity at the base hospital, Glenn Dennis met up for lunch with the mystery nurse at the officer's club. She was still visibly shook by what she had witnessed that day. In urgent whispers and conspiratorial tones, she revealed to the mortician that she'd been supplying the ho- she'd been supplying the hospital stockroom on the day in question when a military doctor pulled her into the autopsy room to take notes. Once inside, the nurse was hit with a wave of foul stench. She immediately noticed three dead, quote-unquote, foreign bodies, as she described them, two of which had been mutilated by the crash and subsequently, and subsequently mangled by desert predators. The military doctors were most interested in the body that was well intact, as she described the entities to Glenn Davis, Glenn Dennis, excuse me, the nurse's shaking hand drew a picture on a paper napkin. The image was of a creature, three and a half to four feet tall, with long arms and a thin body. The nurse explained that the heads were bald, oversized, and fragile looking, like that of a newborn baby. As other alleged witnesses had described, each hand had four fingers at the ends of which, according to the nurse, were small suction cup-like tips. She had become so overwhelmed by the stench of the bodies that she became sick to her stomach and asked to be excused. That's when she ran out into the hall and into Glenn Dennis. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, and this nurse is a really mysterious figure. Glenn Dennis never revealed who she was. He protected her identity that she said, I'll tell you about this if you promise to me that you'll never let anyone know I told you. Yeah. And he kind of sent Carrie and Schmidt down a little bit of a a wild goose chase trying to figure out who she was. And at one point even made up a name for her and they started to distrust him as a witness. But he made a promise to this woman. And according to Dennis, and maybe again, this is just part of um, him protecting her. Uh, she was soon again transferred to England. Transferred. Where after a couple months, he wrote a letter and then f- got it sent back saying that the recipient was deceased. Yeah. Crazy. That being said, um, Karrion Schmidt and Witness to Roswell got a lead from someone who knew somebody who thought that maybe this nurse uh, was a woman named Mary Crowley Lowe. And they tracked her down. She was living, I believe, in Texas uh, in the in the early 2000s, late 90s, and um, got a little bit out of her, maybe some stuff admitting that she had been at Roswell at the time. 
but she ultimately refused to discuss with them the case. And when they floated this past Glenn Dennis, he was like, oh, yeah, Mary, she knows everything. And then realized realized what he had said and called them back later and was like, oh, by the way, never mind. Never mind what I said. Mary, Mary doesn't know anything because they, they have a feeling that she called Glenn and was like, what the out. fuck are you? Yeah, what the fuck are you doing? Going talking to these in, investigators about who I am and what I saw. Mm. So this identity of this nurse remains a mystery. Uh, but it's still a really fascinating story. Another point that we, I think, failed to mention is that uh, witnesses would also say that the four fingers on the aliens would have a little bit of webbing at the base in between each finger. Yeah, yeah. Strange. Suction cupped fingers, webbing, uh, lizards-type scales, insect-like heads, strange Yeah, she corroborated that they mm. had that sort of beaded uh, reptilian kind of skin. Now, I don't know how anybody's going to confuse that with a human, but. And you got to remember that Glenn Dennis, I mean, he did go on to be sort of a, a researcher on this story himself. I would understand why if he saw what he saw. But, you know, it's not like he spoke to Eli Benjamin about the bodies. You know what I mean? It's not like he ever got to talk to other. I mean, as far as we know, these people weren't sharing this information. Now. Another chilling testimony comes from a lady by the name of Miriam Andrea Bush, who was the secretary to Lieutenant Colonel Harold M. Warren, who was the commanding medical officer at the RAAF base hospital. She was handpicked due to her background and intelligence. Now, Miriam was not prepared for what would happen to her that day. From all the eyewitness accounts, something highly unusual was happening at the base hospital that day. Unfamiliar doctors and nurses were flown in and rushing into and out of the halls as the regular staff were ordered back to their living quarters. Military police were posted around the perimeter of the main emergency corridor. One should keep in mind, you know, this hospital was no stranger to a bad day. Training exercises had gone horribly wrong in the past. Mangled plane crash victims, badly burned bodies. These things were not completely out of the ordinary. But on this day... July 8th, make no mistake about it, something extraordinary was taking place. And when Lieutenant Colonel Wayne was pushed aside by specialists he didn't recognize, he grabbed his secretary Miriam by the arm and quietly led her right into the examination room saying, you need to see this. That's when she observed a number of bodies on gurneys in the middle of the room and screamed, My God, they're children! But upon closer inspection, she soon realized that their body size was their only childlike quality. Their skin was grayish to brown in tone, and the heads that peeked out from behind the linens were so large, and the eyes, those eyes, those godforsaken staring eyes wouldn't shut. They would haunt her. It was only when one of the bodies moved that she was pushed out, recalling the story to her father that night. All she could do was weep. So there it is again, another first-hand account of an alive alien body. Yeah, and the eyes keep coming up. Montoya said that he could see the eyes. He wasn't close enough to get their color, but one of the things he also described was how big the eyes were on these on these entities. Speaking of eyes, according to eyewitness accounts recorded in UFO crash at Roswell and witnessed to Roswell, after the autopsies were conducted, 
The bodies were packed in dry ice in a wooden crate and stored in an empty bomb pit on the base that was typically used for weapon storage and guarded by men who had no clue what was inside the box. On the morning of July 9th, so now we're on Wednesday of the week. This is I, We finally got to Wednesday <laughs> after three episodes. <laughs> Just shows you how busy this fucking week was. The wreckage was loaded up onto C-4 planes and flown to Los Alamos, Kirtland, and Wright Base in Ohio. The crate with the bodies was removed from the bomb pit and flown on the straight flush by Pappy Henderson to Fort Worth, where cargo would be transferred, where the cargo would be transferred for its ultimate destination, Wright Air Base. Um, and Henderson, when he flew in to Fort Worth, he picked up Marcel, who had actually, I think we got this wrong in the last episode, he spent 24 hours in Fort Worth and flew back with Henderson on the straight flush. And that's a slight correction from last week when I said that Marcel went out to the base on straight flush. He actually came back to the base on that plane. Baby. Sorry. Totally side note here. This is this is creepy. I'm at my buddy's house upstairs in his office and baby is barking at a closed closet door. Okay. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to go take a look at what's in that closet? Yeah. Yeah. Hold on. I'll keep recording. Stand by. Baby, what are you doing? What is in here? Oh what if god. we hear him get abducted? Swing it open. Oh my god, it oh, would be the best god. radio ever. Oh my god! Charlie! <laughs> oh, you little shit! Oh. <laughs> god damn it! Well, there was definitely something in the closet. Oh, oh my god. Totally Did you not. Did you set that up? No. God. What? God. <laughs> uh, I was wondering who let the dog up, but oh my God. Charlie, you little bastard. <sighs> oh my gosh. That, God. She got scared, me good too. Scared the shit out of you. Oh my God. I had go- like I had the goosebumps because I felt like, oh my God, something feel I feel like something's in there. Oh my god. Oh wow. She's gonna uh, <laughs> She's gonna get uh, it later. Uh, <sighs> oh my god. Oh, Where were Charlie we? Charlie is a genius. Oh my god. Sorry, <laughs> She's a comedic god. genius. Uh, <laughs> okay, you were at uh, Henderson picked up Marcel. Yeah, so Henderson flew Marcel back on Wednesday. That's when Marcel got back to the base and talked to Cavett and was like, hey, what the hell happened while I was gone? I want to see the reports. And Cavett was like, no can do, buddy. Um, And also one of the just a technical note, um, when they flew the straight flush and the uh, the bodies to uh, Fort Worth, they talked about how they the cabin wasn't pressurized. So they had to um, fly at a low altitude. Oh, very strange. Um, Yeah, which is kind of, you know, not normal. Authors Carrie and Schmidt are often asked where the bodies are today. And while they cannot say for certain, they do know that immediately following their retrieval, they were flown out of Roswell with an ultimate destination of Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, home to the Air Technical Intelligence Division. which I just started thinking about you. (laughs) (laughs) I got got, brah. Uh, Sorry, go on. Yes. Home to the Air Technical Intelligence Division, which would later become the Foreign Technology Division. However, 
It is rumored that throughout the years, the bodies recovered from the crash in Roswell were quote-unquote loaned around to select secure military facilities for examination. Rumors even began to circulate that the live alien was spotted in and around above top-secret rooms at Wright Field. Marine Lieutenant Colonel Marion Magruder claimed that his Air War College class was flown to Wright Air Force Base in the spring of 1948. And while there, according to Magruder, the class was shown some of the Roswell wreckage and even, yep, you guessed it, the live alien. Welcome to Wright Air Base, class number 1138. I am your extraterrestrial professor, Galoob, with a hard g. Today we'll be covering the absence of reproductive organs on your trees. Why don't they have any? They have them all over my planet. One anonymous insider claims that the lone survivor of the Roswell crash was kept alive at Wright until 1952, when it was accidentally killed in an experiment being conducted on it. Oh, dick move. So, yeah, right? Like, what happened with the live alien? Did they, or what happened with the live drone? Did they I mean, the live, the live it? alien. Did they ship it somewhere? It, it, I mean, this is the stuff of legends. Legend. I mean, this is, yeah. this is to me when, like, okay, I think we're really getting into, like, myth making here. I mean, this is what the movie Paul is based on. Yeah, you know right, what I mean? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that there was something still alive. Uh, when they when they found the the bodies, I mean, I can kind of wrap my brain around that. But whether it survived for like years later is so creepy and so sad because it's also like, why didn't his friends come get him? Like, well, yeah. Uh, well, and it's because well, he's a drone. He's a scout drone, and it speaks to like not being, I don't know, biological in a sense. Like maybe this thing didn't need oxygen, food to survive. You know, it's yeah, just, it's like losing your iPhone yeah. or like an app on your a living app. Totally, <laughs> it's like losing your GPS. God. It's just like, all right, whatever. We can we'll grow another one. I mean, you do. I do have that problem with uh, like some officer at right being like, okay, I know, I know the tour's over, but. <laughs> Uh, I really want to bring out something cool. <laughs> okay, okay. Gloob, come on out here, buddy. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's, it's it, that's hard to wrap your head around. There was a rumor as as early as the week of all of this happening after July 9th that uh around Roswell that an alien had escaped the base. Oh yeah, I love this. Running around the suburbs and that the military had to catch it and kill it. Well, that- so this this live alien thing, the 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 rumor of the live alien was uh, the myth of that whether it was based in reality or not started that week i mean that's just like part of the genesis of this story well even think about the townspeople of roswell there was even like rumors that a a live one had gotten away from the crash and was like hiding in and around town you know that's what i just said oh oh i thought you meant it right air force base oh right no 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 at roswell like on july 9th yeah gotcha Gotcha. yeah yeah so uh, that's what i'm saying as early as the week all of this happened, there were already stories forming of an of an escaped live alien. Yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, it's wild. Oh, the other thing that we didn't mention about the bodies, uh, the the nurse brought up that there instead of blood, there was like a translucent liquid yeah. in them that had no red blood cells, which is another thing that supports the the idea that this wasn't like a real living regular biological entity at least certainly not from earth i gotta go back Um, and change my watercolor painting then i think you do because you gotta just (laughs) 
<laughs> just use the translucence uh, of your tears to paint the alien blood. Watercolor change. <laughs> really, yeah. really pushing it yeah. with this sound okay. effect. Right. My bad. My bad. <laughs> so before we conclude, let's look back and recap the Roswell timeline we've been trying to put together over the past few weeks. Should we? June? Oh, yeah. I was going to say, should we do it over yakety sacks? (laughs) No. Okay. This is the the peak of my my month's work. Right, right. Here we go. All right, Bryce, why don't you kick us off? Let's do it. June 24th to July 2nd, 1947. Reports of flying saucers start to sweep the nation. These flying disks are seen across the country, but are heavily concentrated in the Pacific Northwest and the American Southwest. July 2nd through 3rd, 1947, Roswell hardware store owner Dan Wilmot and his wife spot a large glowing object shooting across the sky at high speed. They describe it as looking oval-shaped, like two inverted bowls touching mouth to mouth. Wilmot guesstimated the craft was 5 feet in height and 12 to 15 feet in diameter. William Woody and his father, who lived east of Roswell, saw a fiery object falling out of the night sky. Eyewitnesses spread across western New Mexico's far north of Santa Fe claimed to have seen a mysterious fireball streaking overhead in the direction of Roswell. July 4th weekend. After a late night storm, ranch foreman Mac Brazel and neighbor boy Dee Proctor discovered a large debris field on the Foster Ranch in Corona, New Mexico, about 76 miles northwest of Roswell. Brazel and other ranchers marvel at the strange, unbreakable, shape-shifting metal found along the debris. He showed the wreckage to these parents, Floyd and Loretta Proctor. Rumors start spreading that one of those flying saucers had crash-landed in their small community. Brazel stores some of the debris in his cabin. He, Dee Proctor, and another young ranch kid, Sidney Jack Wright, possibly see dead alien bodies two and a half miles away from the debris field. Sunday, July 6th through Tuesday, July 8th. In need of assistance with cleanup and in hopes of a big reward for retrieving a genuine flying saucer, Brazel drives a small collection of debris into Roswell to show Sheriff Wilcox. During his visit, the local radio station KGFL calls for news updates and Brazel's put on the line. He tells DJ Frank Joyce that he found a flying saucer and hints that there are small bodies that aren't human. Colonel William Blanchard, commanding officer of the Roswell Army Airfield, gets involved and assigns Intelligence Officer Major Jesse Marcel Sr. and Counterintelligence Officer Sheridan Cavett to survey the debris field. By Monday, July 7th, the Army begins taking over the ranch and collecting the debris for themselves. Rumors keep spreading of a crash saucer north of town. By Tuesday, Lieutenant William Hout, on orders by Blanchard, sends out a press release claiming that the U.S. Army has recovered a flying disc. The story is printed that afternoon in 30 papers across the country, most notably in the Roswell Daily Record. Meanwhile, Marcel is sent with debris to General Roger Ramey in Fort Worth, Texas, where he watched in disbelief as the materials he collected are swapped out with the rubber, wood, and tinfoil of a simple weather balloon. The cover-up story goes into full effect, with the FCC telling radio stations in the Southwest that they will lose their license if they report on the story, citing national security matters. 
Raimi conducts a press conference from Fort Worth declaring, The whole thing was a mix-up. There is no flying saucer, and they certainly won't be sending any mysterious debris to higher command. Marcel is forced to take a picture with the weather balloon, which hits the newspapers on July 9th with the retracted story. Mac Brazel is also forced to retract his story under military escort and kept at the base for the next five to six days. All the while, back in Corona, the Army starts rounding up materials confiscated from the debris field by locals. Civilians and officers alike are told not to talk about what they've seen and in some cases are threatened with violence and death threats that extend to their families. At some point between the late afternoon of July 7th and the morning hours of July 8th, the impact site of the craft, also known as the third crash site, is discovered. Melvin Brown gets a glimpse of the bodies just before they and the wreckage are shipped back to RAAF for examination. Two paper boys witness a giant flatbed truck driving down Main Street towards the base with an egg-shaped craft or cockpit barely visible beneath the tarp. Lieutenant Governor Joe Montoya gets a peek at the bodies and maybe the wreckage while visiting the base and promptly loses it. Glenn Dennis receives calls from the base asking for child-sized coffins. He delivers an injured soldier to RAAF where he sees a truck full of wreckage and runs into a panicked nurse who has just left an autopsy room full of alien bodies. Dennis is threatened by military brass and escorted out of the hospital. Wednesday, July 9th. The remaining bodies are kept on ice in a wooden crate in a bomb pit at the base until finally being flown out to Fort Worth on the straight flush, piloted by Captain Pappy Henderson. From there, the bodies are sent on to Wright Base in Dayton, Ohio, where they become the stuff of legend, and the United States government begins a decades-long denial of the existence of UFOs, even while funding programs to study the phenomenon. Henderson flies a dejected Marcel back to RAAF, where he demands to see reports on what went on during his absence. Sheridan Cabot refuses to let Marcel see the reports based on commands he received from Washington. Blanchard tells Marcel to forget it and keep quiet about what he saw. Marcel goes home to his family to deliver the news to his wife V and his son Jesse Marcel Jr. that they are not allowed to talk about the debris he showed him in the wee hours of Monday, July 7th. Little Jesse Jr. will never forget that moment and as an adult, before his death, will back up his dying father's claims that the military conducted the biggest cover-up of all time, that they willingly kept secret the proof of extraterrestrial life from not only the American public, but humanity at large. So what do we make of all of this? Hundreds of witnesses have come forward in the 73 years since the Roswell incident. Are there accounts often told to investigators second or third hand enough proof that whatever crash at Roswell came from another world? Simply put, no. But collectively, these voices, passed down now through multiple witnesses, weave a compelling tale that is hard to ignore or dismiss outright. We may not have the proof we need to solve the Roswell mystery, but thanks to the hard work of people like Stanton Friedman, Kevin D. Randall, Tom Carey, Donald Schmidt, and countless others, the story has not been lost. 
the memories of the men and women who bore witness to the event are still alive in the telling. And as long as the story remains alive, hope remains that one day the world will finally know the truth. Perhaps everything we need to know was right there in plain type with the Daily Record's headline, RAAF Captures Flying Saucer on Ranch in Roswell Region. For those of you who remain skeptical, we'd like to provide the final piece of evidence. It's not proof, but it's one hell of a story. This is the sealed deathbed confession of Lieutenant Walter Hout. You'll remember him as the guy who sent out the press release about the flying saucer on orders of Colonel Blanchard. Before he died, Hout wrote this confession, which was to remain sealed until after his death. To the shock of his family and his closest friends, Hout, who never directly admitted that he'd seen any wreckage or bodies or that the Roswell story was true, had this to say. Sealed Affidavit of Walter G. Hout My name is Walter G. Hout. I was born June 3, 1922. My address is 2801 North Kentucky 142, Roswell, New Mexico. I'm retired. In July 1947, I was stationed at the Roswell Army Base in Roswell, New Mexico, serving as the base public information officer. I had spent the 4th of July weekend, Saturday the 5th and Sunday the 6th, at my private residence about 10 miles north of the base, which was located south of town. I was aware that someone had reported the remains of a downed vehicle by mid-morning after my return to duty at the base on Monday, July 7th. I was aware that Major Jesse A. Marcel, head of intelligence, was sent by the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, to investigate. By late in the afternoon that same day, I would learn that additional civilian reports came in regarding a second site just north of Roswell. I would spend the better part of the day attending to my regular duties, hearing little, if anything, more. On Tuesday, July 8th, I would attend the regularly scheduled staff meeting at 7.30 a.m. Besides Blanchard, Marcel, CIC Captain Sheridan Cabot, Colonel James I. Hopkins, the operations officer, Major Patrick Saunders, the base adjutant, Major Isidore Brown, the personal officer, Lieutenant Colonel Ulysses S. Nero, the supply officer, and from Carswell AAF in North Fort Worth, Texas, Blanchard's boss, Brigadier General Roger Ramey, and his chief of staff, Colonel Thomas J. DeBose, were also in attendance. This is Michael interrupting here. Side note, first time that we've heard that Roger Ramey may have been at this meeting? It's very strange. Again, contradictions abound. Maybe he was on the phone. We don't know. Let's get back to this. About to get good. The main topic of discussion was reported by Marcel and Cabot regarding an extensive debris field in Lincoln County, approximately 75 miles northwest of Roswell. A preliminary briefing was provided by Blanchard about the second site, approximately 40 miles north of town. Samples of wreckage were passed around the table. It was unlike any material I had or have ever seen in my life. Pieces which resembled metal foil, paper thin and yet extremely strong and pieces with unusual markings along their length were handed from man to man, each voicing their opinion. No one was able to identify the crash debris. One of the main concerns discussed at the meeting was whether we should go public or not with the discovery. General Ramey proposed a plan which I believe originated with his bosses at the Pentagon. 
Attention needed to be diverted from the more important site north of town by acknowledging the other location. Too many civilians were already involved and the press was already informed. I was not completely informed on how this would be accomplished. At approximately 9.30, Colonel Blanchard phoned my office and dictated the press release of having in our possession a flying disc, coming from a ranch northwest of Roswell, and Marcel flying the material to higher headquarters. I was to deliver the news release to radio stations KGFL and KSWS, and newspapers to Daily Record and the Morning Dispatch. By the time the news had hit the wire services, my office was inundated with phone calls from around the world, messages stacked up on my desk, and rather than deal with the media concern, Colonel Blanchard suggested that I go home and hide out. Before leaving the base, Colonel Blanchard took me personally to Building 84, a B-29 hangar located on the east side of the tarmac. Upon first approaching the building, I observed that it was under heavy guard both outside and inside. Once inside, I was permitted from a safe distance to first observe the object just recovered north of town. It was approximately 12 to 15 feet in length, but not quite as wide, about six feet high and more of an egg shape. Lighting was poor, but its surface did not appear metallic. No windows, portholes, wings, tail section, or landing gear was visible. Also from a distance, I was able to see a couple of bodies under a canvas tarpaulin. Only the heads extended beyond the covering and I was not able to make out any features. The heads did appear larger than normal and the contour of the canvas over the body suggested the size of a 10-year-old child. At a later date in Blanchard's office, he would extend his arm about four feet above the floor to indicate the height. I was informed of a temporary morgue set up to accommodate the recovered bodies. I was informed that the wreckage was not hot, radioactive. Upon his return from Fort Worth, Major Marcel described to me taking pieces of the wreckage to General Ramey's office, and after returning from a map room, finding the remains of a weather balloon and radar kits substituted while he was out of the room. Marcel was very upset over this situation. We would not discuss it again. I would be allowed to make at least one visit to one of the recovery sites during the military cleanup. I would return to the base with some of the wreckage which I would display in my office. I was aware of two separate teams which would return to each site months later for periodic searches for any remaining evidence. I am convinced that what I personally observed was some type of craft and its crew from outer space. I have not been paid nor given anything of value to make this statement, and it is the truth to the best of my recollection. This statement is to be remained sealed and secured until the time of my death, and at which time my surviving family will determine its disposition. Signed, Walter G. Howe. Wow. December 26, 2002. There you go. Wow. There's the whole story, man. I mean, I gotta say, you guys have uh, kind of kind of blown my mind today. All right, <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, I mean, seems pretty clear. These are uh, bioengineered drone pilots made by a conscious AI that's exploring its roots in life throughout the universe. Well, Riley, you could right? have set us up for a new game that we're about to play <laughs> with you. 
the man that we've told this story to over the past three weeks. All right. Get ready for Roswell bullshit or believe it. Oh, God. Super okay. producer Riley. God. You ready? Yeah, yeah, ready. On your mark. Get set. Goats, sheep, and cattle are just a few types of the kind of livestock commonly found on a southwestern ranch. Believe it. The flying saucer flap of 1947 was just a case of mass hysteria. Bullshit. Aliens had the ability to manifest their appearance based on the collective consciousness of humanity. Believe it? Jesse Marcel Sr. was a good dad for letting his kid play with off-world materials. Oh, believe it. Hard. Roger Ramey intentionally lied to the American public about the Roswell crash. Believe it. The object that crashed was a weather balloon. A bullshit. Cowboys are too stupid to recognize man-made materials. <laughs> well, that's some bullshit. <laughs> Alien bodies were found by a group of archaeological students and a civil engineer redundantly named Barney Barnett. Uh, that one, I just, bullshit. Sorry. Alien bodies were found. <sighs> Believe it. Mortician Glenn Dennis received calls from the Army inquiring about child-sized coffins. I mean, believe it. Why would he make that up? The Roswell crash should officially be renamed the Corona Crash. <laughs> believe it. <laughs> the debris discovered by Mac Brazel came from a top-secret military program. Oh, God. That's the thing, though, guys. Because kind of believe it. But I don't know. Maybe it's a Topsy Gamilgar program that's already involved with this thing that we're talking about, and maybe it can be both. Sorry. One of the aliens made it out of Roswell alive. Ah, bullshit. Our government opened up Pandora's box by covering up the visitation of extraterrestrial visitors from outer space, and by doing so have created a giant gaping hole in government trust by the American people, which has led to unfettered special access programs with alien tech leapfrogging over our own civilian space agencies. B -b believe it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Riley Bray, you've just played Roswell Bullshit or Believe It. Wow, that was exciting. I am literally sweating. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Brother, you and me both. My computer is crying from everything that I've put it through. Oh, my God. Wow. 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 This what one a, was you guys. a wow. doozy. Woo. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't know what to say. You guys are really uh, real, you know, but we did it. We did it here. Today. You did it. I think you've done it here today. Beautiful. It's conclusive. Yeah. Beautiful. We, we, we called it on ghosts way back when. Yeah. yeah. We're, <laughs> we're calling on aliens it. today. Aliens are real. Groundbreaking. So Riley, what do you think? I mean, where are you now compared to where you were when we started this story? Uh, well, a lot more informed for one. Um, I feel like I have such a better grasp on this whole thing, and it really is a, a awesome story with so many very well crafted characters. You know, before I kind of just thought it was like folklore, sci fi, kitschy kind of story that people tell. Um, now I, I think it's very clear that there's it's an example of a, a massive cover up in the beginnings of the military industrial complex and that whole situation, which. Uh, you know, we were warned about coming out of World War II, and that's a fascinating angle all on its own. Yeah. And uh, beyond that, I mean, it's like I could kind of echoing what, what Ryan had said before is like this could to me, this could be like some weird early space program stuff 
or it could be extraterrestrial. Yeah. Uh, but it is the one thing I can say with absolute certainty is that it's not a fucking weather balloon. Yeah, I, I totally look. That's the space program stuff. We're still a little. We're still about ten years early on that stuff. So, I mean, it it just doesn't make sense that uh, you know. Look. Operation High Dive, to give you an example, didn't start until 1959, and that's when they officially started, you know, dropping dummies from high-altitude balloons to see the impact. Right. So, so I mean, you know, the space program didn't really even get started until the early 60s, mid-60s, so totally. to think that yeah. this is some, you know, and these are, these are guys that handled the atomic bomb. For them to sit around a, a conference table passing this stuff around going, what the fuck is this? just speaks to the outer worldliness of this material yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's very hard to dismiss i mean and and like you said it's very early for this to be any kind of space program thing it just the timelines don't quite add up but it yeah it's it's something because i'm just thinking about like you know the story of like the glock you know the die glock the like nazi bell and the nazis were trying to develop ufos and flying saucers maybe they were testing you know there's like the v2 rocket maybe they're testing some early high altitude shit yeah that uh that backfired you know yeah and everyone's on a need to know basis so people aren't knowing about other projects i but, mean that, that that's kind of where my mind goes for the terrestrial uh explanation because the it, it just and i'm this is my skeptical point of view is like because it is as bryce would say convenient that this thing crashed near where all of these top secret programs were going on right. so Hard if, it, to if, ignore. if it fell in like Mackinac Island, you know, like yeah. where there's no real military presence and no like testing going on, and there aren't like Nazi scientists that are like helping them build bigger, better bombs, the US bombs, uh, then I don't know. But that being said, when you hear that affidavit from Walter Hout, it's really hard to ignore. When you it really hear is. when you hear some of these old timers talk about on their deathbeds, I know what I saw, and what I saw was not from this planet. That is very hard to ignore. So I think, and I think, if they were aliens and they did crash for whatever reason, this is probably how it would go down. You know what I mean? This is Uh probably, like, no one in this story, to me, is acting dishonestly or counterintuitively of how they would have handled the situation. So I think there's truth in the story and the way that the story unfolds totally and the accounts ring true like this does not sound like you know made up or crazy or hysteria it's all it all rings true and it's just what do you make of all this evidence which is a lot of evidence that it you know it's inconclusive but it's a lot of evidence yeah yeah, I mean, and look, just because you know we've gone over all that this is doesn't mean that uh, there aren't you know out of bounds explanations for this. There's so many theories that you know this could be us from the future uh, that still haven't protect uh, still haven't perfected time travel, and and yet we get back here at a time when we're developing the atomic weapon. And and who yeah. knows? These could be drones th- that we made from the future, sent back in time. There seems to be. Look, you can't deny there seems to be some sort of fascination or obsession with these entities or the phenomenon in general about nuclear annihilation, about what we're doing to our planet, about you know atomic weapons in general, and 
you yeah. know, it seems to be launched right at the perfect doorstep of where we were really developing these and deploying these types of weapon. I don't know. It's all so very strange. It's um, at the yeah. beginning of the space age for sure. Yeah. I mean, and look, they're coming, they're coming to be like, knock it off. Yeah. You dummy. You know, and look, if, like, if like even Ryan was saying some of these metallic properties, these isotopic properties seem to be some, from some sort of, you know, high tech, uh, you know, airplane that we might be developing for so, from some aeronautical thing. Who's to say that you know that you know this could be a, a, a psychic manifestation of something here on Earth that represented itself in the form of a flying disc and little gray aliens that landed right at the the doorstep of the 509th. I'm not you know I'm not saying this could be from extraterrestrial or outer space. This this could be a psychic manifestation of uh, of us terrestrial earthlings manifested in form at Roswell, New Mexico. Far out. I like that. Well, uh, we hope you guys, listeners, have gone on a wild ride along with us. We're interested to hear on what your thoughts are about what really happened in Roswell. So please share your comments in our Instagram at Bigfoot Collectors Club. Follow us for more updates on Twitter at uh, Bigfoot Pod. And please do us a favor. Uh, go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review so more people like you can discover the podcast. And if you do, uh, we will read, possibly, your five-star review on the show, uh, like this one that I'm about to pull up right now. Excellent. Stalling for time. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, my computer, like I said, is dying. Uh, let's look at these ratings and reviews. Here we go. Wow, wow, wow. This is from What's Really Going On? Flipping great. A gazillion times beyond expectations. Five stars. You guys are great in this format. Ouch. Must been re- must have been regressed. Oh, I think they're referring to this multi-arc uh, format that we're doing right now. Thank you so much. Oh, nice. I uh, really appreciate the, uh, what's really going on. Please share uh, your opinion of what you think really went on with Roswell. Boys, I'm exhausted, <sighs> and uh, I think it's time for a well-deserved weekend break. Uh, this has been, honestly, so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. This is uh and we we definitely will do uh bigger stories like this in the future and maybe we'll even go back to some of our old stories in the case files and maybe do some deeper dives. Um but I'm um, thanks so much for you guys supporting the show and listening to this and being excited about uh switching it up. Uh we we're, we're really happy to do something a little bit more ambitious and we hope it paid off. We want to give a big thanks to Ryan Sprague for joining us on the show and a huge thank you to our amazing cast of actors that did uh, special appearances for all of our characters. In alphabetical order, thank you to Eric Edelstein, W. David Keith, Kevin Kirkpatrick, Jen Kirkman, Burl Mosley, Allison Munn, and Gabrielle Ruiz. Amen to that. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you two for putting in all the all the research on this i feel like i've i've really gotten a primer on the subject it was so much fun yeah gotta clean this goddamn apartment is what has to happen (laughs) (laughs) all right boys well let's call it a night until next week good night and go get regressed all right the marathon (laughs) 
Bigfoot Collectors Club is produced by Riley Bray. Our theme song is Come Alone by Sun Eaters, courtesy of Lotus Pool Records. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the podcast to more listeners. To support the show, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Bigfoot Collectors Club and unlock multiple reward episodes every month. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts.